Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome again to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to be looking at Britain's changing world position during the 1920s and 30s. We're looking today at Daniel Todman's book Britain's War into Battle uh, 1937-41 which is the first part of um, a, uh, a two-part um, series, uh, the second um, leading up to the end of the war and the year 1947. So it's a really intriguing study of a, 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 a 10 year period, uh, looking at the bef- before, the during, and the after. Um, here we're just looking at the kind of um, context uh, of um, Britain's uh, war, uh, Britain's uh, position uh, during the 1930s. In a, the other week, I did a, a podcast uh, on um, kind of the, the development of. Um, modern Britain after the First World War, and how Britain's um, position economically was gradually being eclipsed by the USA, or had, had been. Um, so today, today we're going to look at um, the experience of both war and, and depression. So, Daniel Todman writes, For all its modernity, however, the United Kingdom was no longer, as it had been within living memory, the singular great power in the world economy. Since the late 19th century, the country's relative global economic position had been eroded by larger, more recent industrialised competitors with bigger home markets, in particular America and Germany. That erosion was much hastened by the loss of export markets, sales and foreign holdings, and the accumulation of dollar debt and wage increases that resulted from the First World War. In the course of that conflict, New York displaced London as the main wellspring of global finance. The war had also broken a pre-1914 network of international free trade from which London had for generations benefited. During the 1920s, attempts to restore it, including the return of the pound to the international gold standard at its pre-war rate, helped the City of London, but left British businesses less competitive than their overseas rivals and struggling with ruinously high bank rates. A rapid boom and catastrophic bust at the start of the decade had been followed by a prolonged period of low growth. So to that period of um, the, the gold standard we, we, we turn. The um, figure behind um, a uh, high exchange rate was Winston Churchill. Churchill believed, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, 
that uh, businesses needed to be exposed to the the the, the full extent of um, competitive circumstances, and that uh, devaluation simply made them weak. Devaluation gave uh, businesses uh, an unfair uh, advantage, and whilst this might seem helpful in the long run, it made for it made businesses uncompetitive uh, eventually. Winston Churchill's uh, argument ran contrary to uh, most uh, uh, leading economic thinking of the interwar years, particularly obviously that of John Maynard Keynes, who argued that the state had a, a, a role in kind of incubating business. Uh, the state, uh, as kind of an economic activist, uh, had an important part to play in creating the right environment in which business could thrive. Um, Churchill's view that wasn't really informed by economic theory, but more a kind of uh, a rather um, general idea of um, uh, individualism uh, and enterprise, uh, was that uh, only the uh, most daring and risk-taking businesses would survive anyway, and these are the ones that kind of deserve to, to thrive. The result is, um, a, a, as you can see, um, Britain experiences um, a period of uh, low growth throughout the 1920s. One of the, one of the uh, difficulties that Britain also experiences at the beginning of the decade, the beginning of the 1920s, is this brief boom and bust um, from 1919 to about 1921. The uh, British had assumed at the end of the First World War that a lot of um, investment that hadn't happened as a result of the war, a lot of pent-up investment, would occur. That uh, people who hadn't been able to spend during the war would now buy consumer luxuries and other items that they had gone without. Um, this spending turns out to be far more um, uh, fleeting than anyone predicted. And also, um, the, there is a, a huge investment boom as money pours into the stock market. It's the, the biggest stock market bubble of the 20th century occurs in about 1919 to 1920, uh, as it's assumed that um, capital will want to go somewhere. Capital will want to uh, find um, uh, the means of, uh, of returns. What um, investors buy are ships, coal mines, steelworks, cotton mills, and all the things that by the end of the decade are becoming progressively uh, obsolete. Uh, Loss-making enterprises. Um, one of the uh, reasons that uh, money pours into uh, shipbuilding and uh, shipping lines is as it's assumed that there'll be a, a dramatic uh, resumption in world trade and um, ships to take things places. Uh, and there isn't. The world trade throughout the 1920s is extremely sluggish. Um, the, the world does not recover from the First World War in quite the way that is anticipated. By the end of the 1920s, there is um, another period of global economic crisis, um, which begins uh, in 1929. For America, it lasts the rest of the decade. Britain be becomes uh, or sort of uh, uh, comes out of depression by about 1934. 
um, the uh, unemployment rate during the Depression uh, reaches nearly a quarter of the insured workforce. Um, and the uh, alleviation of the Great Depression eventually is the removal of the pound from the gold standard, so a devaluation. And devaluations have happened periodically throughout the 20th century. Normally they are seen as kind of terrible economic humiliations for Britain, but they actually make good sense. The devaluation of 1967, for example, um, when the uh, British economy came under repeated um, stresses as, as a result of its kind of poor productivity uh, and its perceived overspending by um, Howard Wilson, because really Wilson inherited a lot of debt from the previous Tory government um, as the uh, outgoing Chancellor um, had left a, a note in the Treasury famously saying that there's no money left. The British government was... Um, one of the, the kind of the drivers of protectionism during the 1930s, one of the things we often hear about uh, about the 1930s is that um, the breakup of world peace in 1939 is preceded by the breakup of world trade. And Britain, the, the kind of the, the foremost home of free trade, um, finally uh, um, acquiesces to the kinds of imperial preference that Joseph Chamberlain was proposing uh, before the First World War. Daniel Todman writes, The British government reacted to this catastrophe, the Great Depression, by raising tariff barriers with advantageous rates known as imperial preference for goods imported from the empire. After the widespread abandonment of the gold standard, the new trading group formed around the sterling block, uh, made up of countries which based their currencies on the pound and held their reserves in London, as well as most of the British empires, including Egypt, um, Argentina and Scandinavia, nations dependent on trade with the UK and with whom similar agreements on tariffs were negotiated. These countries also wanted, to ac uh, wanted access to London's capital markets, uh, places where one borrows and lends, which were easier to access than those in America. Other countries were also adopting protectionist measures, uh, but the UK's retreat from free trade was particularly damaging because of its place within the international economy. While it encouraged a shift towards more imperial trade, however, the adoption of imperial preference did not, indeed, given Britain's need for high-value markets, could not signal a withdrawal into autarky. In the mid-1930s, two-thirds of British imports and well over half of its export trade were with countries outside the empire. So this is one of Britain's kind of incredible imperial fallacies, uh, one which um, certain parts of the body politics still sort of labour under today. That, I'll just re repeat that. Two-thirds of British imports and well over half of all British export trade came from countries outside the empire. So imperial preference made up a third of imports and under half of exports. And Britain had an empire, but it tended to trade more with the rest of the world. Um, in terms of um, export, uh, imports, 
you're looking at things like uh, wheat from America, um, for which makes up a kind of a significant amount of international trade. If you read um, Adam Tooze's amazing book, The Deluge, the story of the Deluge is kind of that um, the story of um, a str an ongoing struggle throughout the 1920s to rebuild the pre-1914 economic order and therefore and therefore the pre-1914 world political and diplomatic order. Um, and the, the world that was shattered by the First World War, economically was shattered by, um, uh, was left with a legacy particularly of debt. But also, um, all sides had to temporarily suspend um, their, their normally economic functioning. You had to um, have massive increases in the, the capacity of state spending um, and massive uh, imbalances in, in debt um, and the uh, ability of countries to repay debts, particularly to America and of Germany to uh, pay reparations. The whole, uh, the whole international system, the whole structure of um, world affairs hinged upon this. Now, the British retreat from the gold standard from a fixed system of exchange rates was uh, a, a death blow to these attempts. The um, benefit for people in Britain was clear, though. Um, domestically, it meant that interest rates could go down. And this meant that um, the high cost of borrowing declined, particularly for homeowners. This was um, a welcome relief. Um, it gave a big incentive for people, for um, uh, house builders, to build new homes, knowing that people would be able to afford the mortgages to actually purchase them. This. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Had a significant knock-on effect in all sorts of industries, from uh, glass to brickwork to engineering, um, electric, the um, electrical goods, uh, light goods industries, all these sorts of things. Um, and this was part of the uh, the kind of the, the the boom 
in um, private house building and the boom in suburbia and the development of suburban living that we see throughout the 1930s. Often this is seen as a golden age of new um, garden cities, um, of uh, new suburban developments. If you ever read the works of John Betjeman, he may, wrote many kind of payons to uh, Metroland, the, the kind of the suburban belt that st- extends from North London all the way up into Buckinghamshire and Aylesbury. Um, and it was seen as, as a kind of a, a charming bucolic world of high living standards, and, and no doubt it was if one had come from uh, inner city London. Uh, but this was um, uh, Joseph uh, Neville Chamberlain, I do you pardon, Neville Chamberlain as Chancellor had presided in the second half of the 1930s over this kind of uh, urban renaissance. And particularly when he was, um, as Prime Minister, he was very loath um, to uh, risk all this and the, um, um, the possibility of war with Germany and the knowledge of mass aerial bombing. Uh, focused his thoughts entirely on the this destruction of um, the new a new kind of suburban world that was emerging throughout the 1930s. One of the interesting things always to note about Britain's Great Depression is the comparative um, the, the, the the comparatively short-lived nature of it. Daniel Todman writes, compared to America, Germany, and rather later France, the British Great Slump was relatively swift and shallow. Nationally, after 1932, unemployment fell, if only back to 9% of the workforce by the time George VI was crowned, 1937 early. Improving efficiency in mass production and an ongoing global expansion of agricultural production led to positive terms of trade, and for those in employment, disposable incomes grew. By 1937, they were about 10% higher than they had been a decade before. The new industries, in particular, bounced back relatively quickly, and in the Midlands and South East England, where they were concentrated, prosperity rapidly returned. With world trade still depressed, however, exports did not return even to the level of the late 1920s. In South Wales, the central belt of Scotland and northern England, communities built around mining, shipbuilding and weaving, um, rates of long-term joblessness therefore remained extremely high. As I've said before, Britain has this kind of balkanised depression, uh, where in certain parts of the country, you um, enjoy the the kind of the, the, as Benjamin called it, the delights of Metroland. Uh, in others, um, the the kind of the conditions that George Orwell describes on the road to Wigan Pier uh, are are far more felt. Interestingly, Todman writes that by the start of 1937, the post-crash boom was beginning to overheat as rising government spending on rearmament fueled inflation and another cyclical slump seemed just around the corner. However, what is just around the, the corner is the Second World War. And the Second World War, because it's a, a, a war of national survival for Britain and because it involves the state taking over uh, the production of virtually everything and, the, and it, a essentially coordinated economy, means that the normal workings of boom and bust are suspended. Um, in 1945, when uh, the Labour government is elected, um, because of um, 
the, the loan that Britain applies for from America and the conditions of convertibility of the pound which are attached to that, which come, uh, which are sort of um, come full term in 1947. It's only after 1947 um, that there is a kind of a slump back into austerity. Uh, the first years uh, after the war um, see uh, artificially the economy um, structured and managed in such a way that um, there is no um, dramatic decline. But in 1947, um, Britain experiences rationing once again. Uh, so the war years and the um, years of kind of Keynesian demand management after the war, commitment to full employment, a large state sector, a large welfare state, these seem to, uh, from a right-wing perspective, either mask the true nature of the economy so that uh, living standards appear artificially high, or from a social democratic perspective, this is the activist state managing the economy and ensuring that um, the cycle of boom and bust is, if not completely broken, then postponed. Culturally, Britain had changed between the wars, partly as a result of um, the representation people of the People Act uh, 1918 and uh, a further act in 1927, which finally uh, brought about um, the franchise. Um, some historians have argued, not with any great deal of success, um, that the experience of the First World War had declined um, authority, the authority of elites and made people far more kind of sceptical of their forebears. The um, class structure in uh, Great Britain seems to have held on intact um, very um, effectively after the First World War. But what does appear to be um, uh, clear is that um, one of the big industries in, in Britain um, or one of the, the, the big uh, jobs in Britain, uh, that of being in service, goes into terminal decline um, during the 1920s, where uh, previously it was seen as, uh, for poor people, particularly poor women, uh, unavoidable. Um, there are greater opportunities to uh, pursue other kinds of work, other kinds of labour, uh, and not to be um, at the beck and call of the, the, the middle and upper classes. Um, so there is some argument that there, there is a, a decline in deference. Uh, whether this is anything to do with the war is debatable. Perhaps it is to do with the more invisible and intangible process of kind of um, political, social and economic uh, modernisation that Britain is going through uh, after the war. Um, the country is still enormously economically uh, divided uh, and uh, unequal, um, and some of the some of the trends towards uh, nonconformity and a decline of deference that seem to have kind of um, sig uh, been uh, significant in the nineteen sixties, say, appear to have been emerging um, between the uh, the, the uh, first and the second world wars. There are some historians that trace them all back to about the 1890s, but that's a kind of a different conversation. Um, country is still highly uh, Christian in, in its outlook. Um, 
in its sense of um, of duty um, and patriotism, those are all far far more uh, significant um, than they are than anything that British society would uh, experience now. Um, the um, abdication crisis. Um, that has uh, been often ascribed to uh, Wallace Simpson having an affair with Ribbentrop, allegedly, or um, Edward VIII having Nazi sympathies. It's not really to do with either of those things. The British government um, didn't consider the uh, cabinet of Stanley Baldwin, did not consider um, Wallace Simpson inappropriate um, based on any of her uh, liaising with um, members of the Nazi party, there would have been a significant number of royals who would have been out of a job had that been the case. Um, what they thought the British public would not accept about her was that she was a divorcee uh, and that the uh, and a, a twice divorcee, um, and that this was I I essentially. Uh, if not overtly kind of contrary to Christian teaching, then certainly not in keeping with conservative with a small c morality, uh, and that mo and um, the Archbishop Cosmo Lang at the time led the crusade uh, against Edward VIII, saying that um, this was uh, something that was beyond the pale. Probably Baldwin looked at what uh, ordinary British people would have thought and that uh, ordinary British people who had largely conservative attitudes towards private life and sex and sexuality and marriage and uh, fidelity and all these kinds of things and what they would what they saw in uh, Wallace Simpson and what they what they perceived in her was an affront to these uh, to to this commonly held morality. Again, here we see um, a, a a clash between um, a, a kind of an aspect of modernity, you know, individualism, the uh, the right to enjoy kind of individual pleasures and the right to make individual moral choices about things like marriage, compared to uh, a more traditional and conservative and unmoving uh, mentality throughout the, much of the, the population. So despite the modernity we've talked about recently, um, the, uh, the, the, the British still are fundamentally deferential when um, the royal train was steaming up to Balmoral. More than likely, um, local people along the route would crowd the stations to wave to the king. Um, those sorts of those, those, those sorts of attitudes uh, were were still prevalent, and those sorts of attitudes had also survived the crisis of the Great Depression. Perhaps the fact that Britain's depression, as uh, Todman has said, was um, shallower and shorter than most of its nearest neighbours and economic rivals, um, meant that society had uh, fewer upheavals to endure. Uh, and possibly uh, a longer and uh, deeper slump might have eroded deference in the upper classes and the uh, royal family uh, in unforeseen ways. We shall never know. Anyway, thanks for listening. I'll catch you on next Explaining History podcast. Thanks. All the best. Bye-bye. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.